0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 1. If you need to use a Bible, there should be a black one in front of you. Page 883 is going to be the page you want to turn to. And if for some reason you actually don't own a Bible of your own, feel free to take the one that you're using this morning. Well, we're coming this morning to what basically every theologian and scholar would say is, is the thesis of the entire book of Romans. You could say this is the core, the kind of the engine, the thing that motivates Paul. It is really Paul's motivation. It's only two verses we're looking at this morning, uh, pretty short, so would you do this with me? Would you stand as I read God's Word, Romans chapter 1? We're looking at verses 16 and 17 this morning. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, motives are really important, aren't they? They, they reveal a lot about us. They tell people what we value, what we, what we desire, what we fear, and the right kind of motives can lead us to do amazing things in our lives. Bob, he's a Miami Dolphin great, and somebody helped me say his name. Kuchenberg, is that what I'm saying right? You, you older NFL fans, Bob Kuchenberg. Uh, he used to play for the Miami Dolphins. My father would watch NFL back in the 70s and early 80s, and occasionally I'd catch a game with them. His big team was the, the Dallas Cowboys back when Roger Starbuck was the quarterback, and the Dolphins were a favorite as well. Well, we were watching one of these pregame shows, and they're interviewing Bob about his motivation to go to college. It was him going to college and he got spotted by a scout and then he ended up on the Dolphins. His father, he told the interviewer, his father and uncle, get this, were were human cannonballs in carnivals. And his dad told him, son, Bob, go to college or be a cannonball. One day, apparently, his uncle came out of the cannon, missed the net, and hit the Ferris wheel. And he decided to go to college, right? The, the right Now, whether or not that was a true story, but I remember as a young man hearing that going, wow, okay, the right motive can lead us to do amazing things. And this morning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we are seeing what's motivating Paul to preach the gospel. If you remember last week, we left off on verse 15, where Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. And here in verse 16 and 17, we get a little glimpse of why he is so motivated Verse 16, very quickly, just realizes that it is the gospel is available to all, Jew and Greek, and he uses Greek to refer to Gentiles, basically anyone who's not Jew, and that would include all of us, that the gospel is available to all if they would embrace it, that they could have the power of God for salvation. Verse 17 explains how that power is available because in it, that is the gospel, the very righteousness of God, the very righteousness of God is made available to all by faith. Now, if you remember from the introduction, I think I alluded to the fact that this was the very verse that Martin Luther had wrestled with um, to understand the gospel, and through his understanding of the gospel, he had changed the world through the Protestant Reformation. This is a verse that also has changed my life in helping me understand the gospel, and hopefully this morning, it will have an equal impact in your own. In our passage, we're going to see three things about the gospel that truly motivated Paul to give his life for it. And I think it's the same three things that Martin Luther grasped, and it's the same three things that, if you grasp, can really make a difference in how you live for Christ. And, by the way, it's also the same three things that, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, it's important for them to understand as well. And those three things are that the gospel is news, the gospel is righteousness, and the gospel is power. So let's start the first one by saying, The gospel is good news, not good advice. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this about the transforming work of the gospel. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says, God will bring this good work to completion in you, and it's gonna happen on the day of Christ Jesus what does that look like, right? I mean, I always try and encourage you to read the Bible with what I call a sanctified imagination. There's so many good things in here that, 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 that don't quite get into the text because they're not, they're not essential to push the gospel narrative forward. And I think this is one of them in Philippians 1.6 when Paul says, look, he who began a good work in you, one day it will be brought to completion on that day. And as we were studying through the book of Revelation, I think we got two glimpses of what, a little bit of what that looks like. And so you can go to Revelation with me if you want. Keep your finger in Romans. But two particular um, vignettes show this to us. Give us a glimpse. And and they're both the same scene. If you remember our study through the book of Revelation, they're both the same scene, but they're highlighting slightly different things. The first is in Revelation chapter 7, um, verse 9 through 11 or 12 is what I'm going to read. And then again in Revelation chapter 19. Let me read it to you. John writes this. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. It's a powerful scene if you can just use your imagination, not just just read it, especially if you've read this before, but see what's going on. Look at Revelation 19. Again, we see the, uh, the same scene, but the, it's re emphasized for us. Verse 1. After this, John writes, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then jump down to verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of the, mighty, of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine limen, linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Friends, this is a picture where the gospel is taking you. This is a picture of what the gospel promises, and we know that it will come to pass because God is making it so for all those who turn from their sin and self to the Lord. This is what the gospel promises. The question is, have you ever seen yourself here, and what do you see? And this is really important because I know that many of you are really good Bible students, and you know how to read the Bible. You've read this probably. But I just wonder if you've you've read it not just as a student, but as a human being who just struggles in a really hard world. Do you see yourself there then? Because when I read that, I see. I see that we're strong. I see in this crowd, we are radiantly beautiful as we, can, we see the glory of God. And you're fearless because no, there's nothing to fear anymore because it's all been conquered by His glory. And you're good. You're not worried. You, got, you don't get your insecurities and your immaturities and your shortcomings and your quirky, sinful habits. Those are gone. You're good. And you will never ever experience loneliness ever again. And you stand and you see, and you are unstained and unashamed to stand in the presence of God Almighty forever. That's good news. That is something that we all can get excited about. And the question is, then, and if, if that's the future, how does that happen? And if you're a Christian, you should know, Jesus makes this happen, right? Jesus is the one that makes us happen by his substitutional life and death for you and I, living the life that we should but can't, dying the death we should but won't because of what he's done. Both in life and death, Jesus Christ can be your substitute. If you place your faith in Him, He is your substitute. That means this is your future. That's good news. But I think most people, when they think of Christianity, when they think of the gospel, they think of it more like, you know, good advice. This is what you're supposed to do. If you want to get there, then these are the things you got to do. That's what Christianity teaches. Now, I think the first thing you have to grasp for Christianity or the gospel to motivate your life for change is the realization that the gospel literally means, euangelion, the Greek word literally means news, not advice. Christianity is not good advice on how to live your life but the good news on what God has already done for your life. And that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference, friends. Every other religion will tell you this is what you are supposed to do. You do this, you do this, you do this. Christianity is alone saying the opposite. This is what God has done. This is what God has done. But you know, if you ask most people, or family, or friends, ask most people here in South Orange County, what is the gospel? What is Christianity about? And you're probably going to hear something along the lines of, "Well, you, you got, you know, you be a good person. You go to church. You read your Bible. You know, you you kind of be kind to others. You follow the Golden Rule and that kind of thing." Now, to be clear, I think that all that stuff is good, right? Follow the Golden Rule, and we're asking you to get involved in the church. We want you to read your Bibles. But news is not about what you do, right? That's what advice is. News about is about what has already been done. And, and I know most of you here, but there are some of you I don't know or don't know you well enough, and, and I don't know what your prevailing view of Christianity or the gospel is, but to the degree that you think it's about good advice and what you do, then Christianity is about you. But to the degree that you understand it is good news about what God has done, then Christianity and the gospel is about God. And so you might want to ask yourself, is Christianity about me and what I'm doing, or is Christianity about God and what He has done? Friends, when you get that, we had a someone in first hour who was gripped, just really gripped by the worship, that he was weeping. And, and, and if you were paying, it, by the way, you know, if you were paying attention, I've already, the sermon's already been preached, right? I mean, the sermon has been preached already, and this in, individual was so gripped that he just wept because he understand the news, he understood the news that God sent his son to live the perfect life of obedience exactly because he couldn't, and God allowed his son to die exactly so he wouldn't. When you grasp that, like, in your bones, that's when you have the motivation. You want to get into the Word. That's when you have the ability to actually obey the golden rule, right? That's what changes your heart. You see, because if you say to somebody, hey, here's what Christianity is about. Uh, Get involved in your church. Read your Bible. Be kind to other people and try to love everyone you know. Here's one of three responses people are going to give you. They're either going to say, eh, I already knew that, right, indifference, Or if they're listening to you, they'll say, wow, I I can never do that defeat. Or maybe even worse, they'll hear that and say, "Eh, yeah, I'm already doing that, right? Pride, right? Neither one of those will provide the motivation to live for God's glory because the first one really doesn't care. And the second one thinks it's absolutely helpless. And the third one thinks it's all about them. Neither one of those are gospel motivations, Right? And people know that about the, the gospel if you tell them that. See, your friend, your, my friends, your life changes not when you're given some good advice about how you're supposed to live, but when you get, grasp the good news. When you grasp the good news that I cannot live up to, I cannot meet, or satisfy the demands of righteousness ever. And that's exactly why God came to live up to, to satisfy, and to meet the demands of righteousness. And God does not crush me for my failure, but He came and did it exactly because He loves me. Friends, when that gets into your bones, you cannot be indifferent. You cannot feel defeated, and you certainly won't be proud. The only response when you understand that news is gratitude and worship. (laughs) And that's the first thing that has to grip our hearts. If we're going to let the gospel change us, is to recognize, no, 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 no. this is not good advice of how I live my life. This is good news of how Christ lived his life and now gives it to me. And the second thing we have to grasp is that the gospel that can change our hearts is righteousness, not forgiveness. Now, I realized this morning, I probably need to qualify that a little bit because it is also about forgiveness, so then I included this parenthesis. The gospel is righteousness, not just forgiveness, right? Like the first one, forgiveness is great. And don't mishear me that forgiveness is a wonderful realization of the gospel. But the problem is if we just think the gospel's forgiveness and it just ends there, then at the end of the day, my relationship with God is still going to be dependent upon me. Because how it plays out, it says, God says to, you, to me, hey, okay, you're forgiven, but now don't screw this up again. And then I mess it up, and I come back, and God says, okay, you're forgiven, but now really don't screw this up again. And then I f- screw it up, and I come back. Okay, you're forgiven, but stop messing up. You see, because I, I, at the end of the day, I just think it's about forgiveness. And I haven't realized that, the, the, that that's not what brings new life to illustrate, um, several years ago, you remember in the, um, what do we call it, the Great, the Great Recession, the Great Recession, I, I knew lots of people in, in my church, in my community, uh, they were going underwater, they had like taken out extra mortgages, they were hoping the value in their home would last, and they bought other homes, and there's a whole sermon on how to live within your means, that I'm not going to get into, but there were a lot of people struggling with finances, people were just completely underwater, people leaving their homes, you guys know that story if you're old enough to, to be alive at that time. And, 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 and many people, I had one friend in particular who went to bankruptcy court, and he claimed bankruptcy, and owed tens of thousands of dollars, and fortunately was completely forgiven of the debt, right? Now, you might say, oh, that's great. It's like a whole new life. He's completely forgiven of his debt. It's like a new, fresh start, a new life. And I thought, well, not really. Let's say his name was um, Steve, my friend Steve. I said, well, not really, because... Steve's now is just like where the rest of us slobs are. He's still got to pay, find a new place to live, pay rent, work a nine-to-five job, and answer to a boss. That's not really much of a new life. He just had the debt forgiven. That's great. But his life is relatively the same at this point. He's still got to try hard. New life would be like Steve going to the bankruptcy court and the judge saying, Steve, I'm forgiving all your debt. And, uh, By the way, I I found the Powerball lottery ticket, and I really don't want it, so it's $700 million here. You can have it. Now that would be a completely new life from what I have, right? And see, that's kind of what the gospel is. The gospel just isn't, you have this mountain of debt, and God says, okay, I'm going to forgive you of that, but you better be better at this point and and just, I've cleaned the slate, be good. The gospel says, I am forgiving you of this mountain of debt, and I'm also going to give to you All the righteous deeds of my son to your account. What in the world? Now, that doesn't mean you are actually righteous in practice, right? But it does mean positionally that God sees you as righteous. In other words, when a judge declares a, a, a criminal innocent, the judge is not saying, this is a saint, that's why he's innocent. He's just saying, before the eyes of the law, you're innocent in this regard. He still might be a jerk, but now he's innocent, right? In the same way, God is saying, look, you have the righteousness of Christ. That doesn't mean you will live a perfect life. Paul talks about that. It's called the doctrine of sanctification, how little by little we become more like Christ. But what the Lord is saying, before my court of law, you are 100% righteous. You don't have to earn anything. God could not love you more a thousand years from now when you're completely glorified in Christ than he loves you at this very moment. You can't earn more of his affection or his kindness or his mercy than you already have right now. That is the gospel message. That is the gospel message. I want you to notice something with me in our text here. Um, look in chapter 1, verse 17, kind of find that. And then maybe you have to flip over to chapter 3 and verse 21. And what I want to point out to you is I'm going to read them in a little bit, but I want you to hear how almost identical both of those verses are. Now, obviously, the wording's a little bit different, but if you kind of understand what Paul is saying, you'll notice he's saying almost the exact same thing. So let me read them to you. Here's Romans 1.17. For in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, so these two verses are acting like bookends, and they're both saying the same thing, that the righteousness that we need that comes from God is available in the gospel, even though the Old Testament talks about it. So he says that in verse 17, and he says the same thing in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 21. The question is, why does Paul feel the need to have to repeat himself they have these bookends. And the reason is this between chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 21, so basically chapter 118 all the way through chapter 320, Paul is going to build the case that there is no one righteous before God. Not one. Not rich, not poor, not educated, not uneducated, not moral, not immoral, uh, not religious, not irreligious, not Jew, not Gentile, not gay, not straight, not white, not black, not young, not old. Nobody is righteous before God at all. It is a devastating indictment against all of humanity. You excited to come back next week, right? That's what, Paul, we're going to talk about next week and the week after that. But here's the thing. It is precisely against this backdrop that the glory of the gospel is shown because in it, the gospel, there is a righteousness available to all of us. Amidst this backdrop of all of our unrighteousness, Paul's reminding us there is a righteousness that is available to all. So, go back to the text. Look at at verse 1. Paul says in verse 1 that he set apart for the gospel of God, and then verse 3 tells us what that gospel consists of, right? It is the gospel concerning his son. Jump down to verse 17. For in it, this gospel that is concerning his son is the righteousness of God revealed. So, Paul's making it really clear, right? It is the right, in the gospel, we have the righteousness of Christ being made known to us. And theologians have always said that Christ has righteousness in two ways, two distinct ways. Number one, when we speak of the righteousness of Christ, we speak that he is intrinsically righteous. In other words, being God, Christ is completely holy and without sin whatsoever, which is why in John chapter 8, he can say, I always do what pleases the Father. And later in John chapter 8, in verse 46, he could talk to all the, the people of the day, can any of you prove me guilty of any sin? The implication was no, because he is intrinsically righteous. But for our purposes, Jesus is righteous in another way. He's intrinsically righteous, but he is also practically righteous. What do I mean by that? When we say that he's practically righteous, what we are saying is that he achieved a perfect righteousness by his perfect obedience to the law of God and his demands upon humanity. And you remember why this is what, this is kind of a bit of the, the awkward interaction between Jesus Christ and John the, um, John the Baptist when Jesus came to John to be baptized. This is what John says to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, in Jesus' life, he fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness while he lived among us. In other words... All that God demanded of humanity, Christ obeyed. What do, I mean by, what, what do I mean by all that God demanded of humanity? We were created as God's image bearers, right, to represent God, to steward this world on his behalf, and so there was demands placed upon us, but we have failed against those demands. We, we rebelled against him and sin and all the chaos that came with it. Jesus came in and fulfilled all the righteous demands that God's holiness requires, because none of us could do it. So, when Paul says that there is a righteousness from God revealed in the gospel, he means that is that the gospel shows us how we can acquire this righteousness that we need, and it's found in Christ. You see, friends, holiness and righteousness does not get you to Christ, right? That's, that's the good advice gospel, You you want to get to Christ? You want to get to all the benefits of the gospel? Well, then you got to do this. You got to read your Bible. You got to go to church. You got to do all these things. Be kind to others, turn the other cheek, follow the golden rule, and that's how you get to Christ. No, no, no. That's the good advice gospel. Be holy, be righteous, you get to Christ. The good news is Christ is your righteousness, Christ is your holiness. He is all those things, and He's given Himself to you. All you got to do is recognize it and say, That's what I want. Now, obviously, to, to many of you who are, are Christians, this resonates with you. Maybe, maybe for the first time you're grappling with it, maybe you're, you're starting to understand it. But I do know that there are some of you who might be thinking, well, this is good for you like religious types who you're always struggling with your guilt and shame. I mean, you know, you Martin Luther types. I mean, goodness, he was a monk for crying out loud. So, of course, he's always talking about wanting to be holy and righteous. But that, that's just not me. I'm not, that's not it. Mm-mm, but, but this is, does apply to you. Let me illustrate this. You know, I was talking about um, the Great Recession, and as a pastor, I often talk to people who are experiencing loss. And I remember back in the Great Recession, and even more recently, speaking to people who have lost a lot, uh, whether it's money, you know, homes, their career, or um, their health, or maybe even they've just kind of had this existential realization that time has slipped past, and now they're old, and they've lost their youth right? That happens. You know, what's interesting is talking to them, and, and, and I'm talking, yeah, sometimes they're Christians and sometimes they're not. It's really disorienting for them. I mean, they just feel adrift. It, it's not that they've just lost things, although they have. It's like they've lost themselves, and do you know why that is? This, this is it, as, as I've had this conversation numerous times. It's because their money, their careers, their good looks that was their righteousness. That was the thing that made them feel that they are okay, that they have value, that they're they're acceptable, that their lives matter, that they were in control. That was their righteousness. Because here's what the Bible teaches, and actually psychology is catching up to this notion. As human beings, we cannot assign ourselves a value As human beings, we cannot take upon ourselves and give ourselves a sense of worth. We rely on others to do that for us. And so we we look to get our worth from money, from status, from credentials, from achievements or relationships to make ourselves feel that we're accepted, that, that we're valued, we have a worth, that our lives matter. That's your righteousness. And the scary thing is, Any righteousness that's not from God, we know very clearly it will fade or it will be just blown away. Recession is one way. Inflation is one way. Growing old is another. But when when Jesus is your righteousness, when he says, look, I'm going to give you my value. I'm going to give you my worth, my standing, my acceptance before God. It is yours to have that kind of righteousness. It never fades. It never gets blown away. It goes right into eternity. And so like Paul, you can be motivated to live your life in a radically different way when you understand this is not about advice, the things I got to do, but you realize it is good news, that that good news is that Christ is my righteousness, and that can never be deterred. So, the first thing we got to grasp is, do I view Christianity, do I view the gospel like it's good advice of things I got to do, or do I really get it's good news of what God has already done When I look at the gospel, do I just see half of it that I'm forgiven, but it really still is up to me, or do I realize I have been forgiven, and He's lavished upon me all the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though I deserve none of it? There it is. And then the third and final thing is that the gospel is power, not just propositions. The gospel itself, it doesn't contain the power of God, Paul says. It is the power of God. Now, I think the key in understanding this is in the phrase when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? You you don't say you're not ashamed of something unless there's good reasons to be ashamed of something, right? Like, you don't go to L.A. and say, I am not ashamed to be a Dodgers fan. Why would you? You're in L.A., Right? But if you're in Orange County, you should rightly say, I'm not ashamed to be a Dodgers fan, because in Orange County, you should be ashamed to be a Dodgers fan, right? <laughs> no offense, Greg, and the Dodgers who briefly blew over there, but that, that's true. You get what I'm saying. So you don't say you're not ashamed unless there's reason to be ashamed of something. So why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? I, I think he says it for the same reasons as Greg opened us up to, alluded us to, is that we can be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and I think he was saying, look, I'm not ashamed, and we say I'm not ashamed because we recognize that the gospel is offensive. And friends, people were offended by the gospel then, and they are offended by the gospel now. Every time, every culture will be offended by the gospel. The only thing that changes is the source of the offense. Now, in Paul's day, they weren't offended by the fact that Paul was saying that we needed a salvation because in, in that day, all everyone understood humanity is a hot mess and it needs to be saved somehow. What they got offended by, that that salvation came through some poor Jewish guy that was nothing and got crucified. That was a stumbling block to them. Today, we don't get offended that it's Jesus because everyone likes Jesus, right? Even the atheists like to claim Jesus for their moral point of view. We're all okay with Jesus. What we are offended by today, we are offended by the notion that we would believe we still need to be saved from something. In other words, the modern mind believes that the only salvation we need is from the idea that we need salvation. And that's offensive, that we would need to be saved. Because embedded in that, we'll unpack this in a little bit, is a very kind of simplistic message that itself is pretty offensive. It's so pre-modern to think that someone dying on a cross and shedding blood would be the answer. That is so barbaric and so simplistic, it's offensive on the face of it. You just don't understand the complexities of the world. The fact that right now, we, we just, there's so, such a lack of literacy and education. The problems are much more rational. We don't have the right knowledge. We don't have enough education. Our need, our salvation is not a savior. It's better schooling. Or our problems are mental health. We just need better therapies and treatments, not repentance from sin. How simplistic. Our problems are physical. So we need better uh, medicines and better nutrition. Or our problems today are gun violence. We need better policies and better legislation. Or our, our problem today are our injustice and hierarchy and white patriarchy. We need equality, diversity, and inclusive, inclusion. Across a sacrifice. You totally don't understand the world. Now, what the Bible says, friends, if we're honest, that, yes, there are things we we don't know what we should know. We do lack information. Scripture says that our internal worlds are hugely important. Scripture teaches that our bodies matter. After all, we're embodied souls. Scripture teaches and cries out against the violence in streets. Scripture cries out against injustice and prejudice and favoritism in all of its forms. But we have to realize these are just symptoms. We need more than education and therapies and better legislation and diversity. The Bible says we need rescue, and that's offensive. Because embedded in the idea that we need rescue is the idea that we cannot save ourselves. We are helpless, and we need help from outside, and that bucks against every humanistic trend in our society that says we can do this. Our technologies, our science, our, 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 our moral enlightenment, we can solve the problems we face. And you're saying we're helpless and hopeless, and we need rescue. That is offensive. That's exactly what the gospel says. And they believe that the message is so simplistic. That a man who lived in obedience to some Jewish book, who died on a cross and rose again and placing personal trust in this man as Savior and living daily in worshipful gratitude is the key? I reject that. They're offended by the simplicity of the gospel, right? And depending on where you land on the kind of political spectrum, if you kind of lean more left... Uh, you just think that it's, it's too simplistic. There's not enough nuance. What about the angst and the struggle and all of that stuff? And if you're more conservative, you don't like the gospel because it's too easy. I'm being a good moral person. They're not, and they get the benefit too, right? So we're always offended by the gospel. If you're not somewhat offended by Jesus, you're not paying attention to him. And therein lies the power of the gospel. Friends, I would much rather you hear messages at Christ Community Church and, and, and I guess, one of three reactions, Right? That you go, yes, amen, like that young man in first hour, weeping broken but with joy because there's hope. Or you get really mad at me and send me that email and say, oh, this and that, here's your problem, blah, 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 you never narrow-minded fundamentalist, because you both are getting it. This person receives it, this person rejects it, but they're both hearing the message. What I don't want is the in-between, eh, that was yeah, that's good, you know, whatever, I'm a good because you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're not hearing what Paul is saying. The offense is at the point of the power because when you hear the good news that God acted on my behalf because I needed rescue, because I'm helpless and I'm hopeless, when you embrace that, you recognize we couldn't do it. So he did it. And not only did he do it and leave me hanging, he makes himself my righteousness. I don't need anything else. I don't need my portfolio, my cars, my looks, my health, my houses. I don't need those things to give me my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. And that can never be taken away. And when you start letting that marinate inside of you, that good news and that the gospel is my, your righteousness, man, it starts to change you in so many ways. They're just so practical. You no longer have to be insecure. So when people kind of criticize your failures... You don't have to get all defensive about it because you realize my righteousness is not that I'm all put together and I'm the competent dad or whatever or I'm successful. My righteousness is Christ. Yes, that's my failures. But you know what? God loves me in my failures and God is transforming me through his faithfulness in the midst of my failures so I can receive that criticism and not get defensive because that's not my righteousness. And you realize, and yet all through my rebellion against God, how patient he was when I was wrong. I don't need to be right all the time because God was so patient when I was wrong. I can extend that to others. Friends, when you start getting the gospel at that level, and and, and granted, that's not like a Bible study level. That's like getting into your soul level. But when you understand the gospel at that level, that's the power Paul's talking about. But it's not just a psychological power. I I don't want you to think that it's just psychological power that Paul's talking about because he's not. He's really talking about, well, it includes that, The transformative result, when you have these realities in your bones, how it changes you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and relationally. Because you don't care. Not that you don't care. Actually, you care the right way. And it moves you to have awkward conversations. It moves you to speak to people who might reject you because it's not about, you're not worried about what they're going to think about you because that's not your righteousness. Your righteousness is Christ we need to wrap it up but here's what kind of what Peter was getting at in in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 3 his divine power right peter's talking about the gospels was well. divine power has granted to us is is some things no all things all things that pertain to life and godliness and how does this happen through the knowledge of him who called us look at that to his own glory and excellence. Friends, the gospel is power because through it comes the knowledge of the one who is our righteousness, and that righteousness is ours, not because we followed some good advice and did things differently, but because we embrace by faith the good news that we couldn't do it, we were helpless, and He did it, and He gives us forgiveness and His righteousness. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to marinate in what Paul's talking about here. So often we live our Christian lives as if it were just good advice, things we got to do so we can get to Christ, and we forget that it's good news. We don't have to get to Christ. Christ came to us. We need to recognize that He came to rescue us in our helplessness and have the humility to recognize it. we can't do it and to reach out and to claim that news, but in doing so, we recognize that is our righteousness as well as our forgiveness. Father, help us to feel the offense of the gospel against our own pride, against our own indifference, uh, against our own despair, and have Christ rule in our hearts. Would we be a community that is driven and motivated like Paul? In Jesus' name, amen.